Hi, this is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. This is Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. Well, today we are so excited to have Dr. Brian Schmidt joining us, and he has such a neat background and so many stories. Dr. Schmidt, would you tell us a little bit about where you work at and what is your role that you uh, do there? Well, I'm I'm in my hometown. My dad was a physician, and um, I I sort of you know, my dad was smart. He got me, I, I thought I was going to go into business, but he got me a job as a paramedic in Germany on the Autobahn. So when I was 18, so I had, I had the experience of um, being in the operating room a lot when I was 18 and being on the Autobahn with doctors, anesthesiologists go on the Autobahn. So I was on the helicopter and that got me motivated. Um, and, you know, I, my training was Berkeley biochemistry USC med school, and then I trained with Dr. Blaisdell, who's considered the father of trauma at UC Davis. So I had quite a pedigree, and then I trained, as I was at Stanford with my uncle uh, for about a year, and he, he was at, affiliated with Stanford. So then I came back home, and within a year or two, I started our tra the trauma program here because there was no trauma program. So I've been running the trauma program for about 30 years. And, you know, running a trauma program, you know, it, it's not an intrinsic ability of this surgeon. You don't get trained to be running a trauma program. So you, you got to be a, have a pretty high IQ for people management, managing 70 doctors and getting them to work as a team. So, you know, I've had a lot of mentors helping me and a lot of coaching and a lot of education and, you know, trials. Some things work, some things don't. But. Trauma is a little unique in that it has national leadership. It has guidelines. There's a book that tells you the structure and function of the trauma program. And now we have a uh, what's called TQIP, which is risk adjusted outcomes. So, so you have the structure, you have the function, you then work on guidelines that are national. And then you have the opportunity to check and see whether you're actually doing what you're supposed to be doing. And then you get benchmarked against other hospitals. So I'm fortunate in that we have an amazing group of physicians, uh, amazing group of nurses, uh, OR staff. You know, if someone comes in, we get two or three gunshot wounds at once, we, we really flex up. And um, we're generally more or blunt trauma Penetrating trauma is only like five or seven percent, but you know what I'm proud of is our team, and um, our outcomes are in the top ten percent of the United States in certain categories like geriatrics, which is a big focus for trauma. So, but I have a big team. I mean, I, I have my budget to run the program is four point five million over three years. So we get we get tested by the American College every three years. So that's what I'm doing today is PI all day, getting ready for our review. And um, we have three registrars putting data in a data bank. We have three PI nurses that look for issues, and then we have meetings every week to go over issues. And then we have a monthly meeting that is multidisciplinary, and we have guidelines that we update. 
and that's how the program works. Uh, it's, you know, how do you get, you know, it, you know, you, you, how do you enact change? And, you know, I, that's one thing I, I do. Well, I, most people think you cannot make a difference. And I, I know for sure that is not. That is not true. You know, when you, when you learn that in the Iraq war. The mortality for massive transfusion patients, which is defined as greater than 10 units of, of blood given, went down 50% with the use of, um, you know, balanced resuscitation, not crystalloid, but giving pack cells, um, plasma, and platelets. Uh, and then you get that going at your institution. Um, the, the big push that's going to be in the next four years is is quicker to stop bleeding. Um, and I think there's mm -hmm. going to be some stem cell research for, for neurotrauma. I think those are the two big areas that are coming down the pike, but that's a little story, my little story. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's really the best part of my career because I, you know, wherever I, I go in our community, I realize that if someone gets injured, I'll be, I'll, my team will be managing them. So we have a very good relationship with the police department, fire department, um, paramedics, and um, you know we, we interface with them frequently. Sure. Well, it now you, you said you're in, you're in Santa Rosa, California. Is that right? Correct. And and you said you're a you're a level two trauma center, but it but it sounds like you're a level two trauma center that functions a lot like a level one trauma center. You you said y'all's uh, ISS is you know, one of the highest for a level two trauma center. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Your volume is bigger than than Stanford. But no kidding. This is a little bigger than uh, than us. You know, we're seeing, um, you know, 2700 patients and we had our busiest month last month in June because everyone was back fooling around. <laughs> Everybody fooling around and forgotten how to drive, I imagine. Yeah. Yep. What what? Tell me what county are you guys in in California? We're in Sonoma, but we handle uh, Lake County, uh, Mendocino County, Northern um, Marin County, and we even get patients up in Humboldt and all the way up to the 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 the, the border of California. That that's great. We um, you know this this podcast is called Connecting the Dots, and we talk about quality improvement and. And one of the things that we we like to talk about in healthcare is is standard work or standardization. And you know, as as physicians, we tend to push back a lot against that. I know I, I know I I have throughout my career, but I do know that that trauma is a whole lot of of standardization. You know, you have you have your ATLS protocol, and I remember I trained at Vanderbilt that. Uh, we had a protocol booklet. It was a purple little booklet that you could put in your pocket and we called it the Barney book. And it, it had all of your, you know, penetrating trauma to the admin. These are the antibiotics that you use and, and whatnot. Uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about standardization within the trauma setting. Well, I think it starts by having a group of surgeons that are willing to make change. You know, I, I think we have a core group of five and you know we're we're talking all the time about what are you know how are we doing and we 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 meet monthly to go over performance improvement 
Um, and we have a we have a guideline book that's based on national standards. Um, you know, an example: someone comes in and they get a stab wound to the chest. Um, you know, how are you going to manage that? Uh, blunt tra trauma to the chest, frankly, is similar. You put a chest tube in. If the output is getting close to 1.5 liters, you should be considering going to the OR. Um, and you got to be ready to go. Um, you don't want to go to 1.5 liters, and then you're going to be in the OR with two liters. So we have a that's an example of one specific guideline we have. And you know, if you're going to deviate from it, you know, you you you've got to be prepared to have the have it be reviewed. You know, it's a little different if someone falls a week ago. And they come in with a full white out of their chest that's slowly bleeding different than an acute bleed. So that's an example of a guideline. Um, we have a lot of the guidelines just posted on the board, you know, um, you know, when to do a CAT scan on a kid with a head injury or an, a C spine injury. You know, they're 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 a little complicated and it's PCARN. And I just post them. So uh, you can you can just look up on the board if you forget the algorithm and pediatrics is a small part of our practice but we will get a severely injured kid you know the worst i had was someone run over by a boat um on a jet ski with a propeller and a head injury and you know mm. you're gonna you're gonna have to step up and and you know try to save a life we will do a for an epidural, we'll on a kid, we'll we'll do a cranny and send them to Oakland Children's from the recovery room. So I, you know, like I said, we have guidelines for orthopedic injuries, open fractures. We have response times for doctors for emergent problems, and then we we review the guidelines every three years. I'm every three years I review the guidelines and we make sure that. The important ones are reviewed. DVT prophylaxis is a big hot item where uh, 10 years ago, the neurosurgeons would never let us give any anticoagulant to a head injured patient. Now, That's right. the third is 48 hours, um, unless it's an unusual circumstance. It's no different than liver injuries. And that's knowing the literature and, and challenging people that the literature you're protected if you have a guideline and you follow the guideline and you have a bleed you're you're doing the national standard so in some respects the uh trauma committees have really done a great job of putting out standard guidelines east organization puts out guidelines and i'm on i know a bunch of the national leaders if i have a a problem case i'll you know talk to our guys and then i'll i'll go over it with someone who's a national expert, like for blood transfusion, Martin Shriver from Oregon is my buddy. If, you know, we're going to change our guidelines for transfusion. Or we have a transfusion reaction. The, the big push is whole blood now. 4 degree whole blood and getting our blood bank where I'm still. Uh, squeezing them the other, the other part of our program that's important is having people donate money. Um, because we have an ultrasound machine that's not working and we need a new one and it's cost $70,000. The hospital cannot, they don't want to afford it. So I have a, someone donate money and we get that new machine and it's three times better uh, seeing, you know, pericardial blood 
peritoneal blood. Um, so that's another performance improvement project is making sure the surgeons are accurate with their ultrasound reading. So we have a project going on now where every C every ultrasound is compared to a CT scan, and we're going to do that over a two or three month period. So to see what the correlation is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, you know, I mean, I do performance improvement, it, frankly, every day. Every day there's there's some issue, and and then it's a matter of choosing the big issues. Well, to build on the word performance, tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Speedway and some of the backdrop story about that. I remember hearing about that once, and I thought that was really fascinating. Well, I when I was 18 on the Autobahn, that group went to the Nuremberg ring. So I was familiar with raceway medicine and I, my dad was from IU. So I was interested in the Indy 500. So I had the opportunity, um, since we were the trauma center for the track, I went out there and met uh, the physicians that are from Texas Speedway and they had put a hundred million into the track and they had, you know, at the time, uh, you know, a, 80 year old ER doctor and a couple nurses and a cot and the new standards. I mean, we, we have a 12 bed facility with X-ray EKG point of care testing. Um, it's, it's pretty sophisticated because we'll have up to 120,000 for NASCAR. We'll see 300 patients. And, you know, I take our A team there. And the interesting thing is we have to interact. Uh, with the paramedics, firefighters on the track. So I had to learn how to be on the track, but, um, you know, it's, it, it's an interesting thing. If, if you look at uh, a car that has a 50 G accident and the driver walks away, someone is going to put that together and, and apply it to the uh, civilian population to some degree. Um, and that's, that's an interesting sidebar, but, you know, with the, the racetrack is. Um, you know, it's a serious thing. I mean, we've had, I've had, and we've had several deaths out there. So I try to, it's, it's like, you know, right, you know, flying a plane, nor, normally it's no big deal until there's a problem. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that happens at the racetrack. So we just had the <laughs> NHRA and those cars going 300 miles an hour. And, and fortunately we did not have any severe accidents, but basically I take our team out there and, you know, it's a great way to interact with, with the, like I said, the paramedic firefighters and ambulance companies. And, um, I, I just think it, you're, you're just a better doc being prepared. You know, you gotta be prepared. You have a little more appreciation for what the paramedics have to deal with. Absolutely. And, uh, I, as a NASCAR fan, I, I I'm very familiar with the Sonoma track. It's, it's a road course, you know, yeah. as opposed to a, uh, to a, a typical. What you think of as an as a NASCAR uh, track, and uh, a lot you know a lot of a lot of NASCAR fans don't don't they don't like watching the road the road races, but it's there's actually just a tremendous amount of skill involved with it. But you said you guys have a twelve bed unit at the track. Yes. Okay, yeah. and so I I never have you know you always think about treating. Uh, you know, the accidents, but I, I, I didn't even think about treating the actual fans that are there. So I guess with that many fans, you, you're seeing people who, 
yeah with, with, with all half, kinds of problems half, half the half the 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 center's fans half of it because you don't want to have the fans mixing with you you get a driver in you know we, we sort of lock it down but i i got trained at texas speedway with robbie gonzell and then i was with dr bach andy andy's quite a sophisticated uh center as is texas speedway um so they're sort of mentored me up and um you know uh it's 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 a fun part of my job i got to know a lot of the drivers sure and, and you know they they want to see a familiar face that they trust and uh you know so th that's why um you know it works out and we have had a couple a couple of the drivers come here uh i took care of dale Earhart Jr. when he got burned and we sent him to Davis and mm -hmm. a lot of the drivers are very superstitious around the track doctor. So you got to watch yourself. Sure. Well, does speaking of that, does um, does NASCAR, do they have standards? They say, okay, a, a, a clinic at, at our tracks, they have to have this, this, and yep. this, you know, do, do, do you have to have blood there in case, or do you keep oh, negative? There's a whole checklist, you know, airway. Okay. The main thing is airway and stop bleeding tourniquets. And, um, and there's a, there's a checklist. Um, we have a coat. We've, we've, we've had several cardiac arrests. We had one guy go down. I thought he was hit by a car, but he had an MI. So the doctor was there within 20 or 30 seconds. We CP would him for 30 minutes and he survived. Wow. And if he wasn't at the track with us being there, he would probably not have survived. But, you know, we have a whole policy. NASCAR does training. Um, if you if you understand NASCAR, um, they have a head injury. Um, you have to cut the top of the car off, nine or ten cuts. And all you can do to ventilate them is put an airway in their nose and give them oxygen. So, um IndyCar is a little easier. It's an open cockpit, but I hope NASCAR eventually deals with that scenario a little differently because it takes about eight or nine, ten minutes to get the top of the car off. And, um, you know, we've had that scenario a couple times. Man. A, a little bit of unrelated question. I've got to ask the question. So have you ever been behind the wheel? And if so, how fast did you get the car going? <laughs> well, well, the. I know the Indy drivers. I know Mario Andretti. So I got to go. Um, I've been on the the two seater Indy car going probably about one fifty, and I I drive, you know, I've driven a couple Porsches out there, um, but it's my wife sort of restricts me. I'm I'm I got too many jobs as it is. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to mention that. One thing I did do is collaborate with Gucci, um, John Foley, Blue Angels, and I, I adopted some of the Blue Angels uh, tricks and trade tricks of the trade, and that is getting people to do a brief when a, when a, when you get a report of a trauma patient, um, the team huddles before they come in if you have time. Sometimes they just arrive, but it's you know they gunshot one to the chest. What are we going to do? You know, um, they got two IVs in. We don't need a third IV. Um, we're going to do get the ultrasound ready, and then I, I have preset um, carts ready for placing lines 
we'll have a, we'll have a patient coming in coding with no IV, and then we got an ultrasound and a central kit ready to go. So you don't have to ask for five things. You know, shaver, stitches, goop for the ultrasound. So everything is ready to go. And what we have is a checklist uh, to prepare the room to make sure all the equipment is there. The nurses go down the checklist. Then we have a checklist of some of the activities we're going to do, and then we do a debrief um, on major traumas. We don't we we see sometimes twenty traumas, so we don't debrief on every one. We debrief on the big ones, where you know you get three people in, you know three gunshot wounds in at once, and it's a bit of a fire drill. And, um, you know, but I, so, I so you, what's uh, that? I'm sorry, you, you guys, <clears throat> y'all have a huddle before, before the patient gets there based on the EMS report. Yeah. And so y'all kind of know what's going on. So, so like you said, you, you're getting, uh, you're getting things ready. If the patient has no IV, obviously you're setting up for a central line or, or whatever. That, that, yeah, that's, really, like, that's really, that's really cool. I like to do a right femoral. Uh, triple lumen, 12 French catheter in a seven French a line. If someone's dropping their pressure, I want an a line in. So, uh, we have anesthesia responding for code traumas. Um, ER doctor, we have 3 trauma nurses, ICU nurse, phlebotomist. Um, X ray tech, uh, chaplain, you know, we just have a very prescripted. ATLS resuscitation, you know, primary survey, secondary survey game plan and do we the big decision do we go to the or or do we go to cat scan mm -hmm. um, and then you you address you know like i said it's it's very prescriptive and most people know the algorithm we will do some uh, mock resuscitations when we have a lot of new nurses we we have a, a set of new nurses so we're going to do some training with them mm. so so let me let me build on that that right there caught my attention so, you know, you have this socio-technical system that's functioning, and so you have the doctor and the technical skills, and I was curious about whether that's the consistent team of nurses and technologists that are around you, or if that's um, uh, rotating people, and I was curious about how do you develop relationships with those individuals and one of the things it sounds like you're saying is y'all do go through simulation training together is that correct we we will do that you know every couple of years or if I, we get a big influx of er doctors you know they, it takes a while for people to get to know each other and you know uh there is a training program for, for to be in a trauma room as a trauma nurse there's they get trained but then you know you you you, you got to know hey you're new um, what's your name? I mean, it's all about mutual respect. I mean, if you if you are a jerk to people, they're not gonna they're gonna not gonna like you. They're not gonna listen to you. And I think I think physicians don't thank their co coworkers enough. Hey, uh, man, you had a tough night. You did a great job. And I'll 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 um, I'll send notes to nurses that just do an amazing because really when I show up. They, they, I mean, do you know how to put an EKG lead on? Probably not. I mean, how many Foley's have you put in? You know, not too many. And, you know, all the paperwork, I mean, we really are as, as, as good as our weakest link on the team. And, you know, um, so you gotta, 
that's why it's sort of a fun, it's really a team sport, you know, and to be a leader, you have to be, um, challenge people respectfully. You got to challenge people respectfully because uh, shouting and screaming is only makes it worse. And I think the best time to really, if someone is not doing their job, it's to to do it as a separate time. You don't you don't shame someone in front of the team. Um, you may be demanding or ask for more help, but you know you, you, everyone's looking at you to be the leader, and that's why uh, that's the culture we have. Well, one of the ways I heard it said once was, you want that relationship built in such a way so that they're answering questions that you don't ask. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard some great stories from you, Dr. Mason, about uh, technologists and people you've worked in the past where they spoke up and pointed something out that that maybe you didn't see or you overlooked. And I would think that you would want that in a trauma setting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or trauma nurses say, hey, you forgot the antibiotics and, you know, or you forgot the Keppra. So they do that all the time. That's the culture. And 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 we have a lot of at least a third of our nurses are ex-military, you know, so they're used to a collaborative approach. You know, they, they have no problem uh, pointing out that, you know, we, we could we, we need to do it. You know, hey, we need to send this patient to the to the operating room, you know, and and. Um, and, you know, we, we get a pretty good response from our neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, vascular surgeons, plastic surgeons, urologists. And the worst or the or the mo- one of the most challenging cases is a pregnant woman. The number one cause of a pregnant woman dying is a motor vehicle accident. So you get a, a woman who's uh, 28 weeks pregnant. They have a seatbelt injury. And if they develop placental abruption, uh, they can develop DIC and die. So um, we have a pretty sophisticated system. I, I had we've had we had a couple deaths, you know, 25 years ago, and you know, with the placental abruption that was determined late, a small bleed turned into a a, de- a fatal bleed uh, and a dead baby. So we have a pretty um, robust way to take de- de- manage pregnant women, which is in, including getting the OB nurses down there and doing the um, uh, heart rate monitoring and, uh, you know, the, 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 the contractions. And, you know, we, we had one recently where we had the patient up to the OR within about 50 minutes doing a C-section. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I think, I think trauma teams have been, have been way ahead of the curve when it comes to that team collaboration because i remember in residency that that's how it was we were a team and certainly Certainly. there was a hierarchy within the team but the relationships were such that that the nurse had no problem telling me you know what i needed to be doing next and 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 most of the time they were right and 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 we had all developed that relationship where yeah okay yeah you're right thanks thanks for letting me know so it's un, a pretty unusual for a surgeon to be a chief medical officer. How did that come about? Well, you know that that is interesting. I practiced uh, <laughs> I practiced general surgery for twenty three years, and uh, until this January, and then in, in a in a my hometown, which is about an hour south of here, 
it's in a hospital that's in the same system and this position came open and and they they approached me and that that was kind of what I wanted to do but you're right not not many surgeons so uh and a lot of times you get viewed as crossing over on you know over to the dark side but uh but it's been it's been a good journey I, I've, I've enjoyed it and I still take I still take call uh once once a month to try to keep my skills up sure yeah my our chief medical officer is like a pediatrician and He's asking me, well, why did I not accept a patient with a MELD score of 20 who, you know, is, has a severe <laughs> coagulopathy? And why did I send him to, you know, the university? I said, well. Because they had a MELD score of 20 yeah. and a coagulopathy. That's right. <laughs> no, I, I understand. One of the things I did think that was interesting that you said a minute ago, Dr. Schmidt, is that... Uh, is the learning that goes on between different um, disciplines or industries. You talked about learning stuff from the Iraq war that we've been able to bring back to the civilian setting with trauma. Did, did I understand that correctly? Yeah, there, there were about eight things from Iraq war that were instituted in trauma centers, you know, blood, you know, whole blood, uh, vascular shunts, Use of tourniquets now. Use of tourniquets are um, used. Um, you know, all, almost all paramedics have a tourniquet now. Where it was for you know, it was not allowed uh, twelve years ago. Um, and if you're a surgeon, you know, every war there's a major advance. You know, um, the World War One it was a Thomas Splint. World War Two it was a helicopter. You know, so wartime is always a very exciting time for surgeons. And that's why oh, yeah. a, a lot of the top surgeons in the United States ended up, you know, are very associated with the military and they're really trying to. What happens is when, the, when there's no war, the military downsizes so much and they're trying to be a little more uniform and more crossover. Yes, you know, uh, I've also met people in in, you know, the UK, one of the top surgeons in London that he, he managed the London, you know, subway bombings, Kareem. Brophy, and he's also one of the top trauma surgeons in, in the world. Um, they're doing some things in London that are a little outrageous. They'll put in, um, you know, b balloons, aortic balloons in the field, and they start bl blood in the field. Um, so, um, a couple countries are pushing the envelope where they have quick transport times. You know, we, we can't necessarily do that when we're transporting someone, you know, two hours away. Sure, sure. Well, Dr. Schmidt, this was just wonderful spending this time with you. I, I, you're so fascinating. We didn't even get into all the celebrities, you know. I know you've, uh, you've, uh, you've played some golf with some of my childhood heroes, uh, football heroes, and, uh, and uh, I just thank you so much for the work you do, your passion for the work that you do. And and uh, I hope I never have to use you, but I'm, I'm just uh, just so thankful for everything you do. So thankful that you uh, came on the podcast. And on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, I just want to just say thank you a lot. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad, glad you asked me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Dr. Schmidt. Thank you.